0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer. You are the promise keeper. Promises like I am with you always. Even to the end of the ages.
1: And thank you for the way in which that promise has meant so much over the course of these days. People in all these various services this morning promise of your presence. It's the promise of that presence we continue to pray for. The prayer for the promise of this presence for all these services today, in the morning, the three, and tonight. It's the prayer for the promise of your presence
0: on Tuesday as we enter into the poll booths to vote. and for this nation. For our prayer goes beyond an election. Our prayer focuses upon the needs of a nation.
1: Knowing that you can change the heart of a current justice on the Supreme Court, you can create surprises in an election process And in the years by which a president and a vice president serve their terms. There are no surprises in your eyes, just in ours. But we should never be surprised that the God who keeps his promise is the God who offers his presence. Which is what we desire at this moment. So Father, in these minutes together, warm these
0: hearts, we pray. Engage these minds and shape these wills. Come here again, Father, to see Jesus, Him only. Praying these things to again now in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: It's a story that I return to for my own spiritual refreshment around the time in which an election takes place in our country. That on the morning of Lincoln's death, the historian tells us, a crowd of 50,000 people gathered before the exchange building in New York. Do you remember it? Feelings ran high, natural enough in the circumstances, and there was danger of its finding expression in violence. And then a well built man in an officer's uniform stepped to the balcony and, in a voice that rang like a trumpet call, cried out Fellow citizens, clouds and darkness are round about him. His pavilion is dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Justice and judgment are the establishment of his throne. Mercy and truth go before his face. Fellow citizens, God reigns. And the government at Washington still lives. And the writer tells us that instantly the tumult was stilled as the people grasped the import of these sublime words The speaker was General James Garfield, who years later would become president of the United States
0: as well, only to be assassinated, just as had Lincoln.
1: There are no surprises with God. And God in his sovereign purposes provides a way for you and for me to understand the events of this world in light of his timelessness and the way in which he times his involvements to make a difference in our personal experiences and in world events. The spiritual leader has got to be able to understand this, whether it be in the home, single or married, young or old, And to be able to apply now the way in which God desires for us to lead spiritually the hearts of others to bring honor and glory to God's name. Now, what I want to do with you is to draw out five significant aspects by which a spiritual leader is to take the timeless truths of God and relate them in a timely way because we need well timed leaders in the days in which we live, to be able to implement God's word in effective ways for God's glory. And the first comes out of verse 6. And we're going to put it like this. That number one, the well-timed spiritual leader is aware of God's power, God's power as revealed in the creation. Check out verse 6 for you and I are told, You are the Lord. Did you notice that it is capitalized, L-O-R-D? That is the relational, covenantal name of your God. Already you've got a God here who wants a personal relationship with you, as you and I would know, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. You are the Lord, you alone. Notice the exclusive nature of this God In a polytheistic culture like the Canaanite culture was where the Jewish people have returned now to set up a a city on a hill, a beacon of light in the midst of the darkness of the Canaanite culture and ponder now your responsibility and mine as well to be light in such dark times as well. You alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them connect now God's singular creative work with God's ongoing preservative work and you preserve all of them. Did you see that? And the host of heaven worships you. Now, when you see that, immediately what stands out to you is that you have got a God who is able to create something out of nothing. Or as R.C. Sproul put it in his book, The Holiness of God, before the world began, there was nothing. But what in the world is nothing? Have you ever tried to think about nothing? Where can we find it? Obviously nowhere. Why? Because it's nothing, and nothing doesn't exist. It can't exist. Because if it did, then it would be something and not nothing. And are you starting to get a headache like mine? Think about it for a second. Nuts, I can't tell you to think about it because nothing isn't in it. I can only say nothing isn't. Now, your God deals with the isn't. Your God created something out of nothing. And so, as we've oftentimes said, If he is able to create something out of nothing, he's what? Able to create something good out of something bad. In other words, you have got a God who is the God who has created the cosmos. When you and I look at this world, what we see at this point, what political pundits might be evaluating at this point, is chaos. But your God is able to bring cosmos out of chaos. do you ever ponder that the word cosmetic comes from the word cosmos? So if you're standing in front of a mirror early in the morning and you're applying makeup, you are creating cosmos out of
0: Napoleon, when he was standing
1: on that ship, looked out at the universe. And the sailors were mocking the whole idea that there's a God. They're looking around, and in fact, one of them is cynically questioning whether there is even the existence of a God. But Archibald Naismith tells us that Napoleon stopped, stared at the sailors, and then was sweeping his hands across the stars of the sky, said, Gentlemen, you must get rid of those first. And he forces us to ponder the significance of the fingerprint of the divine upon the cosmos in the midst of national and global chaos. Now what you have to do, and what I have to do, if we love Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, is to demonstrate the connection and the tension. There is the cosmos aspect, God is the righteous creator. There is the chaos element that all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God in this world, has been affected by the fall of humanity. But there's a Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3 that is woven together in this tension of cosmos and chaos that needs to be fully understood in order to fully appreciate that we have a God who is the God who is powerful. Not only is he the creative God, he is the preservative God. He preserves all of them. And the host of heaven, you see, the host of heaven, you and I are told, worships you. Now, when you look at that verse 6 very carefully, then this is a commentary on Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3, and where you see God's power, you see God's glory. Glory means heavy, which means you don't take God lightly. And now on this day of atonement, as the people are processing, it is a national day where the Jews are gathering together and there is a corporate national prayer movement where they are seeking God. Interestingly, Ezra and Nehemiah begin by moving them from the creation movement onwards and shows them that before, before the world existed, God existed. And while God does not depend upon our existence, We depend upon God's existence. And so here now is the sense of dependency, of turning to the one who has ordained cosmos, in a world in which humanity has brought chaos. And now we've got a redemption story on our hands, where we are attempting to move people through the timeline and the sequence of events that lead to the coming of Jesus Christ who died on their cross, and brings cosmos to the chaos, not only universally,
0: but to us personally. Starts there. God's
1: power has revealed in the creation, verse 6. But now the spiritual leader doesn't end there, because after Genesis comes Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, The well-timed spiritual leader is aware of, secondly, God's promise as revealed to Abraham. And if God's glory was revealed in God's power, verse 6, God's grace is revealed in God's promise, in verses 7 and 8. You are the Lord, and did you notice again it is capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. But after dealing with the relational covenantal name for God in seven, he then gets singular and exclusive and adds the God. In the polytheistic culture of Canaanite people, here and now the people of the Jews are to be that light in the midst of the darkness and point people in the direction of the exclusive one. And now notice what comes next in verse seven. Do you see it there on the screen? Who chose Abram? doesn't say Abram chose him. This is God's sovereign grace who chose Abram, brought him out of the air of the Chaldeans, which was a highly idolatrous, polyistic culture, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, subsequent to the choosing, because Abraham was tested, and as he was tested, he was proven to be one who would put faith and trust in the one who is to come, in the seed of the one that would come from his loins, the one that you and I eventually know as Jesus. Humanity, but with the Holy Spirit's working deity, two natures in one person. Abram put his faith and trust in that offspring. And so with all of this, he made with him the covenant to give to his offspring, Literally, the seed. Same Hebrew word that was used in the opening account with Eve, where God promised that there would be a seed that would crush the head of the serpent. Same word is used here. So we see now a forward movement that's already inching us towards the cross of Jesus Christ. And now, there's a problem. There's chaos in the land of cosmos. There's Canaanites, and Hittites, and Amorites, and Perizzites, and Jebusites, and Girishites. And yet, you and I are told, you have kept your promise. For you are righteous. So, in a day of WikiLeaks, in a day in which the media tracks each and every promise, and is out there on display on the internet, and where the next president will be reminded of each and every promise that was made on a campaign tour. Here you have the God of gods, who keeps his promise, fulfills his promise, and in the appropriate period of time, by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit within the womb of a woman by the name of Mary, brings about the promised one who enters into this world to die for our sins. And now you have connected God's power, verse 6, with God's promise in verses 7 and 8, but he is using historical events, the creation event, as well as the calling of Abraham, where we are being reminded, we are to remember these things, so we take the stories of the past and relate God's power and God's promise into the challenges of the present. Would to remember. Over a week ago, my sister Marianne and I would take my father to his various medical appointments. My father has just turned 92. And after we met with the oncologist, the cancer specialist, we then made our way over to spend time with his general physician, who I went to medical school with, interestingly enough. And Tim, the physician, said, Well, David... I'm about to give you a memory test. He wanted to make certain we could get a sense of where dad was at in the big scheme of things. So there's 30 questions, and he walked them through the memory test. I'm listening to my father answer the questions, one by one by one by one. When the test was completed, Tim and his nurse turned and looked at me and said, would you think of the memory test?
0: And I asked, what memory test? <laughs> you see, my memory is what I used to forget things with.
1: But all throughout the scriptures, what you and I find is that there is this tremendous and profound, pronounced emphasis upon the idea, remember, remember, remember. And now, in this national corporate prayer movement, as the people within that region are standing before God on the Day of Atonement, they're pondering the timing of this event that they are seeking God on the Day of Atonement when they are coming before Him. And they're pondering the promise to Abraham of the one still to come who would deal with the ultimate Day of Atonement matter on that cross when Jesus would die for your sins. And mine. And that is why during our times of communion,
0: we hear the words, Do this in remembrance of me. So, here
1: now, what we find is that they're being called to remember the power of God as it relates to the creation, but don't create that creation moment is simply a time-bound aspect of God's power. It relates to the way in which God continues to reveal his power in the present. And then you, second of all, consider God's promise reveals God's grace. And you see how the promise plan of God works itself out generation by generation leading towards the promised one who would come into this world to die for our sins. And don't overlook that the Hebrew word offspring that is used here for Abraham was the same Hebrew word which was used to describe the seed that would come to crush the head of the serpent as taught to Eve, back in that Genesis account. God has got a connective generational by generational teaching movement on our hands here as we move it forward. You see God's power. You see God's promise. And you relate it to your life. But now there's a third aspect, you see, that's going to emerge here. Out of all this, not only God's power revealed in the creation, God's promise revealed to Abraham, but thirdly, God's protection is revealed in the Exodus. Verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, Heard their cry at the Red Sea. There seems to be this river that is uncrossable. The Red Sea. Got something uncrossable here in your life? Take now what seems to be a threatening moment such as they. If God would not keep his word not fulfill his promise, there would be no Messiah if they all drowned in that Red Sea or conquered by the Egyptians and put to death. But you start with God's power in the creation. You move to God's promise with Abraham and then sequentially you consider the evidence of God's protection. They're trapped. The Egyptians are surrounding them. The sea is before them. All they can do is to cry out to God, maybe this morning you feel
0: trapped wanted no place to go it's beautiful he heard their cry he hears your cry and he doesn't merely hear there's a verse 10 that follows a verse 9
1: and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. The word wonders here is the very same word which is used in the Isaiah account in the Advent time period. We talk about the one who is a wonderful counselor, Almighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All those words are tied together, really, in what we are covering right here. But wonderful counselor carries with the very same word to describe what is occurring at this point. He performs the signs and wonders that in itself is preparatory work for the the wonderful counselor still to come. All the people of this land, and you knew, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And still in verse 10, you made a name for yourself in a world which everybody's trying to make a name for themselves. But notice that the wise spiritual leader takes the timeless and relates it to the timely. It ends, verse 10, with as it is to this day. Not as it was in that day. You don't have a time-bound God on your hand. You've got a timeless God who does things in timely ways, and now spiritual leadership is such that we take the timeless truths about who God is, what God has said, and we relate them in continual, timely ways. And then you ponder the significance of verse 11. And you divide at the sea before them. So they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths. There is both grace and justice there. The people who were to be the followers of Messiah come, make their way through. Those that were opposed, they experience justice. And so then the waters come down upon them. And then he turns and uses still another analogy, doesn't he? Twelve. And by a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night. He's not merely the God of the day, but not the God of the night. He is the God of the day and the God of the night, which means then at 2 o'clock in the morning when you're stressing over the way things are going and all you see is chaos, you've got the one who is the power to bring about cosmos. And you weave together the power, the promise, and the protection of God. Speaking of protection, February 26, 1844, one of the major disasters in the history of our Navy. The Princeton, the most powerful warship of the day, commanded by Captain Stockton, was taking members of Congress and government officials down the Potomac and on board with the President of the United States, Secretaries of State and Navy, and the entertainment of the guests was the great gun, on the Princeton, called the Peacemaker. It was to be fired. Just before the gun was fired, Senator Thomas Benton of Missouri was standing near the gun, and he experienced the tap on the shoulder. He turned and took one step away to talk to the senator who was standing behind him, and at that moment, the gun
0: went off and shot through the very setting by which Benton would have been standing Benton went on to say that this singular act of God created a powerful impression upon him. The biographer says
1: he was a man of bitter feuds politically, had a fierce quarrel with Daniel Webster. But after this escape from death, Benton sought peace with God and reconciliation with Webster. It seemed to me, Mr. Webster, he would eventually say, as if that touch on my shoulder was the hand of the Almighty, graciously stretching toward me, drawing me away from otherwise would have been instantaneous death. That one circumstance has changed the whole current of my thought life. I feel that I am a different man than I... Was And I want to be at peace with those with whom I've been so sharply at variance. Because my God has established peace with me.
0: Do you experience peace with God this morning? When you look at the cross of Jesus
1: Christ, you should be able to see God's power. God's promise, God's protection, all of the various evidences historically which are revealed throughout the pages of the Old Testament converge in that singular moment when Jesus Christ died in our place for our sins. The touch of grace protects us from the penalty of death. You came down on Mount Sinai 13 spoke with them from heaven, gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And now you look at the judiciary and what it might look like subsequent to this election as the future president will be given most likely opportunity to appoint new justices to the Supreme Court. The question is, will they recognize the moral law above the civic law, the law above the law, and will they be an activist's court? Or will there be a court, as Justice Scalia would have argued, for original intent? And then our eyes go towards the Declaration of Independence, where you and I are informed that it is due to our Creator that we are given certain alienable rights. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And just as the Declaration of Independence serves as the philosophical framework for what would eventually be done 13 late years later in the writing of the Constitution, so likewise now what we see here, we begin with the idea of the Creator and then he sets in motion the idea of an understanding of God's power, an understanding of God's promise, an understanding of God's protection as he moves them generationally Toward the cross of Jesus Christ. And if the power revealed God's glory. And the promise revealed God's grace. The protection revealed God's guardianship. And like a Benton who experiences the tap of the shoulder of the divine. So likewise what you and I have got to do is to understand the tap of the shoulder upon our lives. By which he wants to get your attention and mine. Because people tend to forget, don't they? We use our memory to forget things with. But then there's a verse 14. You made known to them your holy Sabbath, commanded them commandments, statutes, a law by Moses, your servant, the law above laws. You gave them, there's grace. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. That's grace. But that's the promise of grace. And now they're thinking about their wilderness experiences. And maybe you feel that's where you're at right now. If you're wandering the wilderness, and yet you know that you are saved by grace, you're going to have to connect God's power, to God's promise, to God's protection. But not in there, Nehemiah 9 doesn't. Because fourthly, the well-time spiritual leader is aware of God's providence as revealed in the wilderness. In verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously, Stiff necked to their stiffened their neck, did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of there it is, the wonders that you perform, performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. They want to go backwards rather than forwards. Got some people in your life like that? Man, God has revealed his grace, his goodness to them.
0: But they want to go back to Egypt, not forward to Canaan. There's something wonderful about the but-gods of Scripture.
1: Everything seems to go wrong. There's chaos. And then God breaks in. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, did not forsake them, even when they had made for themselves made for themselves a golden calf. You have done that in your life. erected something that's so much oppositional to God, you wonder, will God even use me? Is God still even interested in me? I'm in the wilderness of life. Check out what happens next. In verse 19, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Even after they created that idolatrous calf. God did not forsake them in the wilderness, and in fact the pillar of cloud to lead them the way, did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, to light for them the way by which they should go. And now here are these penitent people as they're processing on this day of atonement, as they nationally stand before God in this national prayer moment. And they're thinking about the fact that God was still willing to lead and did, in fact, lead after the golden calf incident. didn't stop at that point. Which means then you look back at your old golden calf incidents of your past, maybe things that so offended God, you wonder, is God going to leave me in a permanent wilderness moment? And then you remind yourself, having confessed sin to God, Is the people in Nehemiah 9 are doing. They remind themselves the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. Are you looking for direction
0: for your life? Let me tell you a story. Personal. It's 1982. It's the Billy Graham crusade in Hartford, Connecticut. Dr.
1: Bob Bakke, who eventually would become the leader of the National Day of Prayer and the leader of the prayer movement in the Evangelical Free Church of America and now a pastor in Minnesota. Bob and I were standing together on the floors of the Civic Center of Hartford. Billy Graham Crusade is close at hand. Bob is overseeing the prayer gatherings, and I'm overseeing the counseling on the floor when people will be coming forward to put their faith and trust in Jesus. All of a sudden, I feel a tap on the shoulder. And I turn and I look. It's Charlie Riggs. Charlie Riggs was one of Billy Graham's right-hand men. In fact, he oversaw some of the most complex crusades like in New York City in in London,
0: imaginable. He'd done his homework. And he looked at me and he said, hi, Gary. And he looked at Bob and said, hi, Bob. How we doing?
1: Once we realized that we were dealing with one of the right-hand men, of Dr. Billy Graham, took a deep breath and began to engage him in questions about spiritual leadership and how all this got worked out in former crusades and so on. And we said, what have you learned, Mr. Riggs, about the spiritual leadership of Billy Graham? I pulled out this sheet of paper and jotted down back in 1982, what he said to me and to Bob. Charlie looked off in the distance and pointed towards this tall man leaning against a wall in the shadows, and we realized that was Dr. Graham. Dr. Graham nodded at Charlie, and Charlie nodded at him, and then Dr. Graham simply slipped out the door.
0: And Charlie then said, you see, there's one of the points I wanted to share with you. Dr. Graham does not want to be the center of attention. He'll slip out on you. He wants God to be the center of attention. He'll never slip out on you. And then a second point. Dr. Billy Graham, he went on to say, is a bridge builder.
1: Bridging between God and people. Telling them the good news of Jesus who had come to die for our sins. Bridging people together. Bridging nations together. Most importantly, bridging in such a way where we understand the good news that Jesus Christ
0: died for our sins. A spiritual leader is a bridge builder. Eleven years later, it's another Billy Graham crusade,
1: and this time I'm in Pittsburgh, and we're out on the baseball field of the Pittsburgh Pirates where the crusade's going to be held. And I'm pondering and I'm considering my responsibilities as I have the same responsibilities there, only in a larger setting. I feel a tap on the shoulder, second tap.
0: And I turn, it's Charlie Riggs. I said, Gary... I said, Mr. Riggs, he said, you look weary, and I think I know why. Now, it's 1993. He said,
1: you turned down the opportunity to be senior pastor of the church I attend.
0: And you know, Gary, that's one of the pivotal churches in this nation. I said, Mr. Riggs, I, I just didn't feel release.
1: No sense of God leading me into that situation. He must have liked my shoulder. He put his hand on my shoulder at this point, and he said, Gary, God is leading you somewhere. You're not going to be staying in Pittsburgh for long. And he walked away. Now it's 1996. And I'm sitting in a doctoral seminar at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And Dr. John Walter is the professor at this point. And I'm really engaged in what's being discussed. And all of a sudden, John stops teaching, and I feel a tap on the shoulder. And it's Dr. Warren Benson, the vice president of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And he whispers into my
0: ear, Gary. Gary. Think Sheboygan. And I turn and I said, what's a Sheboygan? (laughs) And he smiles and he says, oh, by the way, Charlie says hi. Now we're talking the providence of God. You see, the providence of God is such God, as we have been saying, not merely watches you. God watches over you. Beware of the tap on the shoulder. And where there's a pattern of the tap,
1: consider seriously how God's power, God's promise, God's protection, God's providence are woven together. Because finally, the world-time spiritual leader is also aware of God's provisions. As revealed in the promised land. And in verse 22, And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. And so they took possession of the land of Shaihan, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. But now let your eyes just simply drop down to 25, it appears on screen. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, were filled, became fat, and delighted themselves in your great goodness. If God's power reveals his glory, God's promise reveals God's grace, God's protection reveals God's guidance, God's providence reveals here God's guidance as well as the guardianship. And God's provisions speak of God's goodness. They delight themselves in your great goodness. You find yourself in the wilderness? Are you looking for patterns? Are you absolutely convinced he's not merely watching you, but watching over you in your wilderness? Then embrace what's here, the five aspects of well-timed spiritual leadership. And embrace what Garfield said, fellow citizens. Clouds and darkness are around about him. His pavilion is dark waters. Thick clouds of the skies. Justice and judgment are the establishment of his throne. Mercy and truth go before his face. Fellow citizens, God reign. The government of Washington
0: still lives. And on Tuesday, God reigns. And three days later, that eternal
1: promise was fulfilled when Jesus was raised from the dead
0: and seated at the right hand of the Father. He lives. Done together. Now, for some here, it's all chaos.
1: They entered today and it seemed as though things just don't fit together.
0: Well, Father, remind them that there's grace and justice, there's cosmos
1: and chaos. Yes, There is the righteousness of God, but yes, also there is the sinfulness, the fallenness of humanity. And it's part of the complexities of life. There was a wilderness, but there was also a land of Canaan. What we need to do, Father, is that in the challenges of life, to be able to see together how well-timed leadership in the home, in the church, in the nation takes these principles and relates them in a timely way to honor the timeless God.
0: We want to do that on Tuesday. We want to do that every day. He lives. And we live for him. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.